Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 156 of the Intercooler Podcast with me, Dan Prosser, and Andrew Frankel, my co-host. Um, we're joined by a guest this week, a TI contributor, one of our writers, David Tuig, um, who is a phenomenally experienced and highly regarded automotive engineer. In the episode, I explain uh, much more about his background, but he talks about his career. We touch on um, EU 2035, so the petrol and diesel ban coming in 2035 and the e-fuels exemption um, and we look ahead and wonder what the landscape might look like in Europe in 2035 and beyond. Um, David's career has been fascinating, really varied. He's done sports cars, he's done EVs, he's been involved in autonomous cars so we talk about all of that stuff. Um, he's a really good storyteller um, he's a brilliant writer as well. So if you haven't read his stuff on the Intercooler app and website, you should go and look at it now. Um, he's great value. Uh, and if you enjoy the episode, please rate and review it. It really, really helps. Um, and while you're doing that, you can just hit the follow button or hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to the podcast. That helps us find a bigger audience and it means we can do more and more with the podcast. So thank you very much and enjoy the episode. David Tuig, I don't do many clever things, but asking you to contribute as a writer to the intercooler was one of them um for one and i'm sorry but you're just going to have to sit through this while i pour praise on you you write brilliantly for one thing but you also because of your professional background you have a point of view and you can bring a level of insight to the intercooler about the industry about the process of developing and engineering cars that no journalist ever could um and if you haven't read david's stuff you really, really should. So go and subscribe now and you can read every piece that David Turk has written for the Intercooler. Indeed, every piece we've ever published. Um, but is there a writer within you, David, just sort of wrestling to get out? 
Dan, I, I don't know what to say in, in response to that intro. I think we should just stop the podcast there. And that, that's it. Thank you, folks. It was great to tune in uh, before See my head explodes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you, you must have had literary ambitions for, for a while. Honestly, not really. Not, mm. not really. I mean, I always kind of enjoyed writing stuff. I used to, um, in my uh, in my mad youth, I used to kind of do a lot of rock climbing and stuff like that. So I wrote bits and pieces for a couple of climbing magazines, but not really. And it was actually you pointed out. I remember we were having some exchanges, uh, you know, uh, professional exchanges when I was working for a car OEMs and you were doing your journalist bit. And I remember we were having a few emails back and forth. And you pointed out to me that you know oh, you've actually got a bit of a way for words if you ever oh my go god to the car industry. Let's let's um let's talk. You might be able to do some writing. So you actually, it's my fault. You, yes, you, you, you are, David, the kind of man who makes motoring journalists feel very nervous and insecure um, because <laughs> the more there are people like you, the less or the more likely it is people will realise there's absolutely no need for people like us at all. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm, and one of the things that I think I'm, it might be the thing I'm proudest of about, um, about TI is getting guys like you... Um, Annie and Callum and Julian Thompson and Joe Fidalgo onto TI, people who are who don't just report on the work of others, but people actually get out there and do it themselves um, and get them to write directly for us because inevitably your perspective is one we cannot possibly provide. Um, mm. And it is such a pleasure. Um, and and, and you know, the reason we asked you to do stuff for us is because, you know, we knew that you had some fantastic contributions to make. And we kind of thought, well, if that means we have to rewrite every single thing he sends in, that's OK, because that's not what we're employing for. We're employing for his, you know, for his engineering talent and insight. And then suddenly these words come in and you think to yourself, damn. <laughs> it's true. Great and awful at the same time. You know, great because they're fantastic words and it means that we don't actually have to do anything to them, um, but awful because you just make us feel terribly redundant. But, you know, the flip side to that, Andrew, is every time I put pen to paper, I'm conscious of not only the people that write for TI, like Ian, Julian, Joe, etc. So I'm like, I'm absolutely terrified. But also some of our readers, when I see some of the comments on the website and the app, and I know some of those people who've got... Yeah, um, people who are making those comments... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you you have to be on your game because there are people reading it who are genuine global experts. But um, but gentlemen, we'd better stop patting each other on the back, or we'll be we'll, our, our our listeners will be rolling their eyes. I'm sure they will. But for for those who don't know, I should just explain who David Tuig is. So he does write for the Intercooler, but he's a very um, experienced and actually distinguished automotive engineer. He, during his career, he was chief vehicle engineer. So the engineering boss for three very significant cars. The first Nissan Qashqai, so a bit of a game-changing volume seller. Um, the Renault Zoe, um, and this was in the early days of EVs when Tesla was still just producing the Roadster. Um, so that was a pioneering car. And then the Alpine A110, which is a seminal sports car. So between those three projects, you have an extraordinary background, extraordinary breadth of experience. Um, and we're going to talk a bit more about your career later on in this podcast. But this is the first episode that we've published since uh, the European Union confirmed that e-fuels um, or cars that run only on e-fuels will be exempted from the 2035 petrol and diesel ban. So. I think we do need to touch on that and get an engineer's perspective on some of this stuff. Um, and maybe I, I want to put it to you, actually, David, looking ahead 12 years from now, 
What do you think it's going to look like? I mean, presumably, I, I, I'm sure we all believe this, the vast, vast majority of new cars sold will be battery electric vehicles. Mm. Has, yeah. has, I, mean, I, think, I think the big question is, is has the internal combustion engine just had a stay of execution or in reality, whatever this legislation says, is the reality of it going to be that it's either going to be too expensive or not sufficiently widely available and it'll rule itself out without the regulators having to do it for themselves? I'm, I'm going to say yes and yes to both of those questions, i.e. I think the vast majority of, let's let's say passenger cars, right? Yeah. I do think if we look 10, 15 years out, the BEV is going to be the solution. But I think we're going to, and I'm saying nothing original here, lots of observers will say the same thing. I think we're going to see a fascinating mix of technology. I think we're going to see H2 fuel cell fueled vehicles at either ends of the spectrum, talking about heavy buses, trucks, etc. And I do think we're going to see combustion engines, whether they will be burning e-fuels, H2, combination of the two. I don't think the game is over. And to, to kind of give you my engineer's answer in inverted commas, I, I think part of engineering is you have to be uh, you have to be an optimist. Um, by definition, you're designing the future. And if you think that future is miserable and sad and it's all going to be you know not worth <laughs> doing, you wouldn't get up in the morning. So I tend to think that look, the legislation is a challenge, and it's going to challenge creativity. It's going to make engineers, future generations of engineers, come up with some cool stuff. So okay, it may not be the cool stuff of the past. But I'm 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 optimistic. There's cool stuff. I'm old enough to have remembered in the early '90s. I was a young engineer when you know catalysts, catalytic converters became um, required. Well, they're going to ruin everything, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, exactly. In '92, <laughs> right? We were all crying in our conflicts. We yeah, unleaded, unleaded petrol with catalytic converters. It was all over. Yeah, it was all would over. never sound interesting again. Exactly, it was game yeah. over. Hey, here's the news. You know, there were a bunch of fun cars made since then. Uh, yeah, cars that will blow your socks off. So. I'm an optimist. I think that the the the, the legislation, yeah, it's 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 going to ch- cause some challenges, but human creativity will rise to it. And yeah, I think the explosion engine is not finished. Oh, I, oh, well, that, that, talking of which, and I'm very glad to hear you say this. I, I'm just picking up on one particular thing you just said, which was H2 hydrogen in a combustion engine. Years ago, and I'm thinking this must be the best part of 20 years ago. BMW had a fleet of seven series, yep. knocking about. And I drove one and it had a switch in it, literally a switch. Indeed. You have to have a different engine. And you could choose what went into that engine. Switch it one way, petrol went in, switch it the other way, hydrogen went in. But they clearly didn't pursue it. So with you know, all the advances have been made and what we know now, do you actually think that hydrogen is a viable means of powering an internal combustion engine? I'm gonna say it. I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna give you a lawyer's answer. No, it could be, but you're uh-huh. you're you're right. That, that I think they call it the hydrogen seven concept. They did. Like yeah, yeah. Um, it is. I mean, if you if you look at the kind of maths of this, and I'm not complaining. I'm not claiming to be a combustion expert here, but especially in larger engines, you can get thermal efficiencies close to petrol and diesel. And so you can make the engine work properly. The difficulty is. NO2 or NOx emissions. So obviously hydrogen doesn't emit any CO2. It emits yeah. water out the tailpipe. But here's the problem: as you stress the engine and as you start to run it towards its air fuel ratio, you get a ton of NOx emissions, and they're nasty things. You know, they cause respiratory problems. They're suspected to be possibly um, part of the reason why 
people are sensitive to allergies that they maybe weren't in the past. So it's not nasty stuff. And that's what really stopped the development of, of H2 combustion. But there are solutions. You can imagine solutions, and especially for larger displacements, mm -hmm. it could possibly come back. So I think the kind of stay of execution that we've seen on e-fuels may well also generate a bit more research into using H2 in, in, in piston engines. Wow. It's worth saying um, that certainly under the EU regulations coming in in 2035, very low volume car manufacturers are exempted from it. So under a thousand cars per year. What's, what's not entirely clear is what the UK is going to do, because clearly the UK is not part of the EU. Um, will it just adopt EU regulations or will it do its own thing? Um, it's a bit of a mystery at the moment, um, but I think it's out for consultation, isn't it? And currently, uh, I've read a quote this morning from the Ministry, of Tra Ministry for Transport um, saying that e-fuels could be a solution for specialist cars, um, but uh, essentially no more than that. But I that's think a that's a real politician's term, isn't it? Because it, it can, is. Yeah, a specialist car, what is, what is yeah, a specialist what is car? That? I mean, but, but that's all we're talking, isn't it, for e-fuels? It's only going to... No one's suggesting that they e-fuel cars might displace battery electric vehicles or anything else. It's going to be a specialist thing just to keep a very, very tiny proportion of new cars on the road. And I think, Dan, going back to your question, original question, I think you're absolutely right. I think... The BEV, it has a lot of advantages for, let's say, normal day-to-day, -day, Monday to Friday driving. Mm. It's going to dominate the market. So we're really talking about, I guess, the cars that interest the TI readers, the yeah. specialist cars, be they classics, right? Cars that have already been built or future sports cars. And I think it's worth also pointing out that as well as the exemption for under 1,000 cars per year, there's another zone between 1,000 and 10,000 production units a year where a manufacturer can basically negotiate a delay until 2036. Now, if we take that bracket, that covers a, a lot of the cars we're interested in, things like Lotuses, Aston Martin, the Alpine A110. They don't go through the 10,000 per year barrier. So there's there's a lot of runway. You know, there's a do, do, do you know, optimism here. Do you know, David, um, uh, and this isn't really an engineering question, it's more of an industry question, um, but specifically you mentioning something like an A110. Now, obviously, you know, Alpine is owned by Renault, um, which is a, which is a very large company which makes which makes millions of cars per year. So can you just can you just like create a subsidiary, call it something like Alpine, uh, and then take advantage of this of this concession, or does it has to or does or does the parent company have to in total make less than ten thousand cars a year? Exactly, it's, it's it's not as simple as that. Of course, you can't just change the, the the name over the door. It's the kind of substantial ownership of that is taken into sure. account. You know, so it, get, it gets tricky. But there's there's opportunities there. So once again, to so the 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 optimist, I think there's um yes, we have to resign ourselves that probably most of us are normal, you know, car. Especially if we live in large cities, it's probably going to be a BEV. Yeah. But there's going to be some fun stuff. Okay, last word on this um, e fuels matter before we move on to more interesting things. Um, each year. It's about 80 million cars are produced worldwide. Um, now, if, say, 0.25% of those um, are e-fuel cars, we're talking 200,000 cars. 0.25%, a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction. Now, 200,000 cars covers every Ferrari, every Lamborghini, every McLaren, every Aston Martin, every Mazda MX-5, every Alpine, every Porsche sports car, every Lotus, and we're not even at 200,000 cars yet. So yeah, it could well be that we find ourselves in this future where a tiny fraction 
of um, cars produced run on e-fuels with combustion engines, but that covers all the cars that the, tip, the t- typical TI listener or reader is interested in. And, and Dan, we should also mention, because I, I feel duty-bound to correct my last statement, I made that statement as if EVs will never be fun. And I know this is a yeah. debate we've kicked around among we ourselves. Have. <laughs> but I believe they will be one day. And actually, some of the work I do, some of the confidential work I do for clients who shall not be named, is exactly about that. How do yeah. we solve that? How do we make them lighter, more fun, etc.? So as well as those 200,000 explosion engine cars they're going to be fun evs as well so so, so david i mean and, and you know i wouldn't ask let alone expect you to give away state secrets here but are, are you more <laughs> you, you clearly are more optimistic now it's one of the questions that i always ask any uh, sort of chief engineer on any press launch i are you know how do you make a fun ev and I, if i'm honest with you david i haven't heard a convincing answer yet but are you starting to hear convincing answers are you starting to think actually it may not be the same kind of fun, but there will be an e- there will be f- uh, maybe the same amount of fun derived in a different way from EVs, EV sports cars in the future. I, I am for I am, be- and I think it's largely because there's just more effort going into it because mm-hmm. of the conversation we've 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 had. A, a lot of OEMs, large and small, are thinking about this and and making efforts towards it. But and this is a really big but, Andrew. A lot is dependent, and we could have a whole other podcast on that. A lot is dependent on the charge infrastructure, yeah. Because it all hinges about getting Absolutely. that down, and that means I can't cart around a seven hundred and fifty kilogram battery, and for that to work for the users, it means the charge infrastructure has to come up. So that's a whole other discussion. Yeah, yeah. which I we're going to leave for that. another day. We will leave that for another day. Now we are going to talk more about your career now, David. And actually, if you want to know all about it, David's book Inside the Machine. Um, really does detail from start and you, to finish. And, and the good news is you can get it now. Oh, could you not before when you were trying? But when it first came out, I got so annoyed because every, every we, we have this little WhatsApp group within, within TI, um, which we're all on. And everybody was, you know, they'd ordered it from out. And I just couldn't get one. It was so popular. It flew off the shelves so fast. <laughs> I mean, I was just a bit, I must have been a bit late to the draw. Now, that's why I ordered it and then they cancelled it. Anyway, I did get it in the end. And presumably it is a bit more widely available now. It, it, it is. It's absolutely available on all your favorite uh, online and offline booksellers. But I have to point out here, Dan, that this is Andrew being extremely professionally conscientious because I offered to send the chap a freebie. But he was, <laughs> he's too noble. He would not no, accept it because of, because of his that, journalistic that neutrality. Like at all. Actually, I think the truth is, I think the truth is you sent me two copies, one to pass to him and I never did. Um, anyway, <laughs> the truth comes out. None taken. <laughs> so let's, I, 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 I'm not going to blow any more smoke, David, but I, I think yours was the perfect career because of those three big projects that you oversaw from the engineering side. Three very different projects. Um, but take us all the way back. You're a cork man, aren't you? So as a young boy obsessed with cars? Yeah, yeah, very, very the typical stereotype, Dan, you know, my, yeah. my dad was a, a car fanatic. He was a blue oval man. He was extremely proud that he worked on the production line in Ford. It was his proudest boast that he installed the, the first V8 engine ever installed in a, in a Ford in, in, on the Cork production line because, yep, Ford had a big assembly plant in Cork. Um, so what, did that, what car did that go in? It actually went in, it was literally a Ford V8 van. That, that's what it was called. And my dad installed it uh, just after the war. Yeah. Wow. wow! So would that would, would that have been, would that been like a flathead V eight? Yep. Uh, flathead really? V8. Yep. Wow! They were, they were still putting them in production in um, really basically vans. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. 
And uh, I had no idea. That was a very proud boast. And and typical of his generation, you know, he he didn't get a chance to kind of do you know higher education and all that. So um, you know, he probably directed me towards engineering because he didn't manage to do it himself. Um, even though he was kind of I would guess a born engineer really. So. My childhood is all memories of, you know, lying under, you know, Mark One, Mark Two Cortinas passing my dad spanners as he fixed them on the weekend. So, yeah, I, I, I guess I, it was only one direction for me. Yeah, fantastic. So you went to uni um, and that, you got your degree and that eventually got you a job over um, in the UK, didn't it? Um, at Nissan. Cranfield, isn't it? Cran- the, the technical centre there. Indeed, and you know, I, I, I've kind of pat myself on the back here because you know I graduated in the end of the eighties, early nineties, and I decided to study electronics engineering. Uh, I knew I wanted to work in cars, but I could even then you could figure out that you know electronics were going to be important, and it was probably the right call. And I was lucky to be recruited, yeah, by Nissan's technical center in Cranfield, and this was the era where Nissan were, you know, they built the big plant up in Sunderland. Uh, in the late 80s, and they were starting to bring R&D into Europe. The slogan at the time, you know, was uh, designed by Europeans, built by Europeans, for Europeans. And I was uh, I was recruited fresh out of college uh, to be part of that generation of, of Nissan engineers. Take me then to Cranfield. And I, I imagine as a wet-behind-the-ears, newly graduated young engineer, you are given the small jobs, aren't you? But I want to, so you'll tell me one of those small jobs, but I want to know, does it feel like a menial task or is that an opportunity to prove that you're not a no-hoper? Oh, no, it was fantastic. You're absolutely right. You're, you're, you're day number one on the job. You know, you've come out of university with your fancy degree and you've got a head full of, you know, differential <laughs> equations and, uh, you know, Schrodinger's theories, et cetera, et cetera. And you've done all the hard sums. And the first job you're given is to mark up a drawing with a yellow highlighter and a red highlighter. That's it. Uh, <laughs> And my very, very first job was, you know, laying out a little sensor, an ABS sensor on the rear axle of a Nissan Primera and doing a tiny design change that would save a couple of cents on that. Um, so you're very quickly cut down to size, but I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I remember signing off that first tiny tweak to a drawing and thinking, what I just did on this piece of paper will be in production in a few months' time and we will build hundreds of thousands yeah. of them and they will be sold yeah. and driven by real people. And I still remember the thrill I got from that. That, that car won't, wouldn't have been the way that it is were it not for that input in some small, tiny way. Yeah, in a tiny, yeah. tiny way. And that thrill of, I just created something. Yeah. Not, that's not, it's like not seeing just your a piece first of software. It's going to remain, going to go into the physical yeah. world. That thrill yeah. is the same now as it was then. God, you can tell how much you love it. Um, so how long were you at Nissan during that, that spell then? Ooh, 13 years, man, man and boy. So, um, you know, working my way up through the ranks, um, uh, very, very fortunate to spend a couple of years in Japan also, uh, during that period in the early two thousands. And that was absolutely fascinating. You know, uh, I've been interested in Japanese culture anyway, as, as a kid and joining a Japanese company, getting the chance to actually work in Nissan's technical center in, in, in outside Tokyo, which is there. You know, they're the global headquarters. You're talking about ten thousand engineers in this in this huge campus. That was that was amazing. That was a, a fascinating experience. But but this was an interesting time to be working for Nissan, particularly in Japan, wasn't it? Didn't I think in your book you say that money was so tight within the company that the lights would go off at six p.m. or something? Yeah. So this I, I joined in ninety two, and in ninety nine was basically the period where. Nissan literally went bankrupt. It was written off as, you know, junk bonds. 
and then rescued by Renault and the famous Renault Nissan Alliance. Um, we could talk about that again for an entire podcast. But yeah, I was there at the kind of the the, the bad days when, as you as you said, the electricity went off. We had no print paper in the printers, and rather more alarmingly, we had no paper in the gents' room. <laughs> So that was an issue. So you had to make sure to bring in those commodities from home. Uh, but the amazing thing was we just kept working through it. We just kept our heads down and kept developing the cars. Yeah. And that impressed me, Nissan's ability to get through the hard times. And then, of course, the amazing years of kind of the rescue of the Renault-Nissan alliance and the whole Carlos Ghosn story. That's pretty well known. Yeah. Blind. Is this a good time to just start talking about the cash guy? Yeah. Did, did, did you know... That that car, or, or or maybe even just that genre of car, would be the absolutely transformative game changer in the marketplace. It turned out to be. Did, was there a little thing? Did you sit there thinking this is just another car? Or did you sit there thinking this is different and this could really resonate out there? Absolutely not. I I didn't. I didn't. Um, but I think some some of the people did. And I'll tell you one little story that still blows me away to this day. So this would have been. Let me see, this would have been around 2002 when we were doing the very early planning for the vehicle. And the gentleman who was the product planner was a, a guy called Akihisa Suzuki. Uh, and product planners never get enough kudos. You know, we always talk about designers and engineers, etc. But Suzuki-san, I remember being in the meeting with him in Japan, and he looked me in the eyes and he said, Dave, we're going to do peak volume 135,000 vehicles per year. The peak volume is typically the third year of sales. And I remember looking at him thinking he was going crazy. And I said to him, Suzuki-san, are you sure? Because we'd benchmarked vehicles like the Honda HRV, RAV4, etc., And they weren't doing anything near those volumes. And he looked at me and he said, Dave, styling's looking good. You're going to do a great job of the engineering. This car is going to be a huge success. And I didn't believe the guy. But I thought, okay, he's the, he's the expert. Let's go with it. The first year of production in 2007, five years later, Ashkai did well over that number. The second year, it hit 250,000 units per wow. year. And it flatlined at 250,000, quarter of a million cars per year for the next five years. And the only reason it flatlined was Sunderland couldn't build anymore. <laughs> so Suzuki-san saw something, and even he was wrong. He was out by a factor of two, two. in the right direction. So we didn't realize that it was going to be such a, a massive hit. And obviously, when that happens, when the volumes are twice what the car maker estimates, that's when it earns the name cash cow, you know, because yeah, it does yeah. be, of course. I mean, you know, it's you're printing money at that stage. Well, so that, that car probably more than any other created the crossover SUV sector, which is now enormous, enormous. Family cars are by and large now crossovers, aren't they? Um, but, but, what did Nissan get right? What did your engineering team get right with that car? Well, well Dan, just to wind you back on that question, I'd, I'd, I'd slightly dispute it. Um, I know the cash guy gets that credit. I'd actually have to tip my hat to the Honda HRV. Mm. Uh, I know it's kind of forgotten, and you know nobody nobody remembers it though. Um, you know, it's like it's like all these cars. I'm just a very brief diversion. If you think of all the cars which are are deemed to have created their sectors like i don't know like the golf gti or the the range rover or the renault espace or whatever they were actually they were never the first none of them were they just were the ones that got it right it's like i don't know it's like the boeing 707 you know that wasn't the first commercial jet liner the comet was and boeing sat there and watched all the mistakes and thought okay fine now we'll do it properly 
and learn from that experience. And you know, and you know, the HRV probably was the first crossover, but I can barely remember what it even looks like. Yeah. Oh, oh, the best thing, the, the best way to remember it is the car that had the Joy Machine written across the back tailgate. What a fantastic! <laughs> but and the second, just quick anecdote, and then I have to tell you is that I met a very illustrious British journalist at the Alpine A110 launch who now works for TI, but shall remain nameless, who walked up to me and said, is your name Dave Tuig? And I said, yes. And he said, I heard you were chief engineer for the cash And I said, yes. And he said, thank you. You effing ruined the last 10 years of my life because all I do now is drive boring crossovers. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. For the avoidance of doubt, it wasn't me. It wasn't me either. It wasn't me. <laughs> So, but you guys got something right with the Qashqai because, I mean, those sales numbers are extraordinary. It saved Nissan in Europe, that car. Oh, for sure. That's that's un- undisputable and, and very much helped uh, Nissan worldwide. That was climbing out of this, this, this trough of the late 90s. Yeah, so I think, you know, I've been asked over the years, what, what, what did the team get right? And I would, again, give kudos to product planning. You know, the car, I think, is was very well thought out in that it offered what you need and nothing else. Mm. Um, you know, all the money was spent on the right areas. It was spent on the driver's area. It was spent on the, the looks of the car. It was spent on the layout. But, for example, if you open the the, the trunk of a cash guy, it's not much in there. It's very, very simple because the money is spent elsewhere. I think it was a very good design. Nothing flashy, nothing outrageous, but it just appealed to people. And the design was done by a very good friend of mine, uh, Stefan Schwartz, um, very talented Swiss designer. Um, and also the pricing. We sweated bullets on the cost of that vehicle every penny of that vehicle is engineered to the last so that it could be offered at an attractive price point so it's one of those just right product right time um nothing particularly flashy about it but it just hit the hit the zeitgeist in uh, in 2007 when it was launched sunderland you've spent a bit of time up at uh nissan in sunderland tell us about that place oh sunderland is a place where you know, you, you walk in the plant once and you fall in love with it. And I'd, I'd mm. encourage you guys, if you've never toured around there yet, you, you, you would love it. And the guys and girls who work there just love showing it off. It's it's a fantastic plant. It is one of the most efficient car plants in the world, not in the UK, in the world. They're intensely proud of that. They're intensely proud of, you know, the heritage of the Newcastle Sunderland area, in terms of shipbuilding industry, etc. All of that centuries of passion has been distilled down into that plant. And it's a it's it's a fantastic place to work. Um, it's a fantastic team. I, I I I loved every minute I spent there, and I'm very proud to have been part of it. And yeah, if you guys ever get a chance to visit, do visit. And they actually do public tours as well. A couple of times a year, they open the gates and let local folks have a look around. It's a fantastic place. It's good timing this because I, I don't know if this episode will go out before or after we publish a story by one of our writers, Stephen Doby. He is a Mackham. He's from Sunderland. And he's written a piece about the significance of the Sunderland plant within the community in Sunderland. It's a really... It's a great, it's a great it, human piece because we think about these cars these, and the massive faceless factories they come out of. And we don't think enough about you know and uh, and Stephen's piece is it's very touching it's very moving because he's talking about you know the industries that kind of had just died at the time they broke ground for the new factory and the hope um, and how you know people who did get to work there and how it's been handed down the generations it's the transformative effect that 
business had on the lives of people in that community it's just not something i think we we, we focus enough on okay. um, we we used to which probably still do you know the uh, the guys who work in the, in the plant uh, they have obviously workwear you know they, they wear uniforms online to protect themselves on the cars you know bright blue kind of industrial workwear and the rule was you were not supposed to wear it outside of the plant right you're supposed to change your clothes and go home in your own clothes but we couldn't get the guys and girls to actually take the jacket off and they left because they were proud to be seen wearing a Nissan jacket in Sunderland. It was just a mark of, you know, it, it was just a mark of pride. So we'd have to mm. remind folks, can you remember to take your jackets off, please, when you're walking around the streets? <laughs> so after after Qashqai, um, you move on to the Renault Zoe. We won't hang around too much on this car, but can you just give us one tale to illustrate just how early in the EV revolution this was? I mean, there wasn't a framework laid down. There, it wasn't clear that um, decision A or decision B should be made because you were right at the forefront of develop, developing an EV. Yeah. Uh, and again, it's, I know it's hard to believe because we've all got used to zipping around in EVs, seeing them. But yeah, 2008, 2007, actually, when we started the development, it really was the dark ages. So yeah, you, you, you had to develop everything from scratch. You couldn't just phone up the usual tier ones, Bosch, Valio, Continental, and say, hey, guys, you want your standard widget? They didn't yeah. have the widget. Uh, and that, Did, that was pre- fascinating. Presumably you had full access to the LEAF project at the time. Was was, was that useful to you? Very, very. And um, it's, it's an interesting story. That one, again, talking about human stories, Andrew, because um, for various complicated political and industrial reasons that I will not bore you with, there's very little actual physical commonality between the two cars, right? They have different platforms, different batteries, different powertrains, etc. But I was very good friends with the chief vehicle engineer of of, of the Leaf, a gentleman called Kadotasan, and we'd call each other every Friday. And he'd call me and tell me the problems he'd had and the nightmares he had during that week and basically vent at me and basically warn me, Dave, don't do this because it doesn't work. So, um, <laughs> and that really did help me because I was running roughly about a year behind Kadotas and facing the same sure. problem. So, yeah. even though you don't see it in the physical car, again, there's a human story between the two. So, very much Leaf helped us out a, a lot, actually. Mm. And then on to the Alpine A110. Now, <laughs> <laughs> which I don't think we've I don't think we've ever mentioned on this podcast. No, no. <laughs> but now we've now we've got the bloke who developed the thing. We sort of have to talk about it a bit, don't we? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you weren't there from day one. So what did you inherit? What was already set in stone about the the physical makeup of the A110? Um, well, well, Dan, first of all, I have to do that thing. And, you know, this will make you that. Um, you just credited me as being the bloke that developed the language. I know. There's a lot of discredit to the other 129 <laughs> folks. Who, <laughs> so I, I'm one of the team, uh, yeah. approximately. Yeah. Yeah, so again, you know, I remember at the launch, people asking me, you know, you guys started this project off as a joint venture with Caterham. Is, is, is you know, does it owe some of its roots to Caterham? And I always used to say this car has 50% British DNA, 50% French DNA, because, yeah, there's a lot of Caterham. When we say Caterham, we can immediately say Lotus, and we got to tip our hats to two people, Colin Chapman from Lotus and Jean Redley, the founder of Alpine. So, so there's, there's a lot of mixed DNA in there. So that's a long way of answering your question, Dan, which was the project had been started up before I joined in a joint venture with Caterham, and the kind of outline of the car, the selection of the architecture, 
some of the basic material choices, the choice to make it all aluminium, for example, had already been made. Um, but there was still a lot of uh, there's still a lot of work to to be done before we finally launched. And and and, and had the split from Caterham happened before you arrived? Yes, just before, literally just before the, um, let's say, the um, industrial divorce papers had just been signed amicably, I have to say, amicably. And the catering team who were, unfortunately, couldn't continue working on the car. They were very useful. I had some really good handover discussions with them. And I'm actually still in contact with some of those guys. They wished us well, were very sad that they couldn't be part of the adventure. And and they were super happy when the car came out and they saw their hard work come to fruition. So, uh, nevertheless, I mean, I think you inherited an aluminium car, a mid-engine car, probably a double wishbone all-round car. Um, it had its powertrain, I would imagine. And yet, all of these things still have to be finessed to turn those ingredients into something you really want to drive. What, what was the key to all that? I mean, is, at the heart of it was being obsessive about weight. Do you think that's maybe the single biggest reason it's such a great driver's car? For sure, that's an easy one. That's a, that's a yes. Um, but to, to, to your point, and we'll come back to the, the the mass management, the weight management. But to your point, there's a hell of a difference between having a first outline of a car, some mm. nice design sketches, even having a first you know concept car, even having a first prototype that you can drive on a track. Between that and actually being able to build it in series production, there's many many people have found out just how hard those steps are. So yeah. Um, I'm not going to say it's the hardest part. It's all hard, but it it's very easy to underestimate how hard that is. But, but but we 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 have seen, haven't we, many times in history? And you know there are, there are, there are names that we could mention now, but I won't bother. Where, um, you know, maybe someone exhumes some famous old name from history, and they produce a they produce a car, and they show it, and it goes around the circuit, and then we go woo, and they place their orders. The job's not even a quarter done, is it? And, and frankly speaking, that's why I was brought into the. That's the easy Alpine, bit. That's why I was brought into the Alpine project. I was not a motorsport background guy. I was. I had no pedigree in sports cars. I had a pedigree in getting production cars across the line and production cars that were seen as being difficult to get across the line because tough targets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So Renault and Alpine deliberately brought me in as the guy who knows how to get cars into production, not for my skills in, you know, honing the dynamics or uh, because I, you know. I was the guy who was going to get it across the line, and luckily we, we did. And, yeah, mass. It's all about mass. Yeah, and if you hadn't been um, so obsessive, do you think the mass could have spiraled? Could it have been a 12, 1300 kilogram car? Oh, for sure, in a heartbeat, in a heartbeat. Really? And, uh, you know, one of the things we did, you know, any company, unfortunately, you have to use these tools that we're all, you know, we all hate, you know, PowerPoint and Excel and Word documents, all of these things, you have to use them, okay? It's it's modern. But one of the simple rules we had was every document we ever used, every slide that was ever projected on the wall, bottom right, there was a little corner saying, what is the impact on the mass? Very simple, but very, you know, very psychologically important. Every decision. I'm not just talking on, you know, will we use forged or cast wheels? I'm talking about every decision to do with the project. So you tracked it all the way through to make sure you kept it under control. Was there a weight target when you arrived and and did that change over the course of the car's development? There was. It changed once and that was it. It never changed again. And I think what's interesting about the weight target was 
it would have been so easy. And, you know, we had a lot of discussion about, oh, come on, let's go for the psychological ton. Let's go for 999 kilograms, right? Yeah. And we had the discussion about, you know, yeah, maybe we could get there. But we also made the great, I think, a very um, important decision, which was we weren't going to cheat. We weren't going to play silly buggers with wet weights and dry weights. And we weren't going to do negative options like deleting the NVH packs and all of this stuff. Yeah. We were going to try and be honest with ourselves, first of all. And secondly, with you guys, with, with, with the press, we were going to say, if the car, if we declared X, you take the car and you put it on a weigh bridge, it's going to be X. So that's why the target was set a little bit the other side of a ton at 1080 kilograms, to be precise. Was that, was that the first target or was that, was that the second target? That's the second target. That's the premier edition and the car that, that uh, the car that you guys drove at the launch um, and the car, you know, similar to the car that Dan very foolishly sold for a golf. Or some kind of <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. Thanks for that. So, but, the, you know, I'm sure you could have stripped the carpets out, all the sound deadening, the, the hi-fi, the nav, all that stuff. But it's a better car. It's a better car because it is uncannily comfortable and usable for a small, lightweight sports car. And, and the point of that, again, was we were going very much, every day was, we were thinking about road car. This is a mm. road car. Now, it's not a bad car to drive on track, and the subsequent version, the A110S, and now the R, of course, there are hardcore versions which are which are an absolute hoot on track as well, but this is a B-road blaster, and that, that's what it was designed for. And... As soon as we say that, you, you need the little bit of creature comforts you just mentioned. You need yeah. a little bit of NVH. You need the supple suspension. You're probably going to need a sound system at some stage because it's a road car, a proud road car. <laughs> yeah, again, I could talk about the A110 all day, but we, we really... Did, just for you, can, can you just talk to us a little bit about the sort of what I see as the sort of the circle, circle of virtue, whereas if you make one bit of the car lighter, you therefore have a lighter car, and a lighter car therefore needs smaller brakes and can get away with narrower tires uh, and maybe it doesn't need quite such robust suspension and that in itself creates a lighter car and so you go round and round again um does that work in the real world or do you just get to a point where actually you're just chasing your tail and it's costing too much and you you just got to eventually sign something off and put it into production no it, it, it really does work in the real world and the the manifestation of that and this is going to get really boring i'm sure Folks will stop listening now. One of the key things in managing the mass of a car is figuring out how much money you're going to spend on reducing that mass. Yeah. Because in the end of the day, most of your decisions are going to be, okay, can we afford to do this? Should I put a forged alloy wheels on it? Or should I put aluminum here? Should I put a carbon fiber roof on? And making the right decisions on that is really important. And for that, you need to have figured out how much money you're going to spend, how many pounds or euros per kilogram saved. And this is where your virtual circle comes in, Andrew, because mm. when you ma- make a mass saving, you've got the direct cost saving of the actual material, right? I'm spending less aluminium or carbon or whatever it is, but I'm also have the knock-on effects of the other systems, and that increases the price trigger point. So therefore, you're able to spend more. So figuring out the financial details of that virtual circle is actually what drives the decisions forward. And it's very hard to do, um, and a lot of companies find it so hard that they just don't do it, and they kind of go on gut feeling, and gut feeling doesn't work. Mm. Can I just, I'm going to put you really on the spot now, and I know there's all sorts of stuff which is still very secret squirrel about the A110, which you can't talk about. All the things that you feel you can talk about, 
Is there one thing on the car which you just think, in your most immodest per moment, yeah, that was really clever? I'm thinking about your windscreen wipers and things like that, which I just think are genius. Yeah, the windscreen wipers are very cool. Uh, for those who don't know it, it's it, basically the, the, the water comes out of the windscreen wiper, not on the little nozzle attached to the blade, but by tiny holes drilled in the blade themselves. And that makes uh, very efficient use of the water, and we can reduce the, the, the washer bottle from 3.5 litres to 1.5 litres. Uh, very, very cool. But no, I'm not going to take that example because that's really technology that was developed by the supplier, Valio, so their engineers need the credit for that. No, the one I'm going to kind of pat the teams back on because it was are the seats. Those, And I'm talking specifically about the Sabalt bucket seats yeah. in the premier edition etc they're slightly more comfortable adjustable seats in the more gt versions but those seats are amazing because there's a lot of work and technology gone into the way the backs are molded so that they work for all types and sizes of people they work for really you know big you know strong people they also work for little skinny guys like me and that there's a lot of thought technology sweat gone into the back back design of those those seats let's move it on then so after alpine you um you moved companies you moved continents um over to california um tell us i mean you were working for byton which didn't last the distance did it sadly but it was a um a ev startup um how different was the culture over in california compared to europe compared to japan Oh, completely but but yes you're right you know after after i'd spent 13 years with renault as well so you know i had been 26 years basically with the same company if you consider renault and nissan the, the same company and um yeah that that was a long time and i got tempted to go to california um you know i think i must have had a midlife crisis or something but um you know i'd been i'd been curious about the whole tesla thing the startup uh, scene in california and i got tempted to go out there and throw my hat in the ring um so the answer to your question, Dan, is very, very different, as you can imagine. We're talking another car culture, talking a U.S. car culture in a particular part of the U.S., the West Coast, which is unique in the world. So I think the only thing that allowed me to survive, because I think it would have just blown my mind completely, was actually, oddly enough, Alpine. Because Alpine was, in many aspects, a startup. It was a very small team of very motivated people, you know, working in a kind of skunkworks manner. Um, and that kind of that kind of allowed me to change the mindset and be able to survive in a startup world. So tell me, was Byton onto something? And in your view, where did it where did it go wrong? You know, it really was it really was onto something, which is a, a huge regret of mine. Now, it, Byton was never going to be a TI kind of car, right? Mm. We, we were it was not aimed at the enthusiast market that 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 forms the bulk of our our readers and listeners. It was very much a car for um, aimed at the China market and aimed at people who are interested in technology. It was a tech heads car. So mm. hence the huge 48-inch screen that got a lot of kudos, advanced driver aids, etc. So it was built for people that weren't interested in right and handling, weren't interested in dynamics, but were interested in getting across Shanghai in a rainstorm when it's going to take you three hours and you're going to be stuck in traffic all the time and you want to have access to your technology. So it was aimed at a new generation of consumers who are not interested in the traditional automotive values that, that fire us up, but are very much interested in technology. So it was a very interesting 
project. Uh, I think it was the right car. Um, and what went wrong? Very simple. We learned the, the, the hard startup lessons. Uh, the statistics are that 90% of startups fail. Yeah. That's true in the car uh, business as well. And we simply failed to raise the money. We ran out of cash. The classic startup error, I'm afraid. Yeah. And, talking about things that don't necessarily appeal to enthusiasts and petrol heads. <laughs> Waymo after that. That's another diversion, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I decided to really go to the dark side. <laughs> so, that was Waymo is that is that Google? Indeed, it is. So, yep. Waymo is the wholly owned subsidiary of Google. So, it's the Google Car Project. If, if folks remember back to around 2015, um, Google were very early in the autonomous car movement. They, their involvement goes right back to the DARPA challenge that launched the whole thing. They built the Google, the, sometimes called the Google Car. Its official name is Google. And a Firefly, and a few few years back, spun off that business into a wholly owned subsidiary called Waymo, and basically that is their company now working to build AD level four cars. And I work for them uh, in California um, on various secret projects. <laughs> secret? How secret? Too secret to share with us now? And um, definitely too secret to share with you because a uh, professional conscience, I, I can't talk about them, but also I've signed some absolutely terrifying NDAs, which mean that if I believe <laughs> the single word of it, uh, Californian lawyers would break into your houses right now, throw flashbangs and wrestle you both to the ground. Well, don't, don't mention it. <laughs> but you, you can tell us a bit about autonomous driving level four. I mean, am I a couple of years away from being driven up the M4 to the airport? More than a couple of years, Dan. Um, okay. No, but to, to to give to give a hint of the kind of projects I was working on, and we'll come back to the AD Level Four question. Um, you know, I, I can talk about this because it's now public domain. Waymo have showed about a, a year ago their new vehicle, which is uh, called the Waymo Zika, Z E E K R, and that's a joint venture with Geely. So if you if you Google that vehicle and have a look at it, it will give you an idea of the kind of projects I was working on. Um, there. I've stayed within legal legal guidelines there. But uh, but I th- I think your view is that there will be autonomous vehicles on the road soonish. Absolutely, absolutely. So first of all, I think we need to. This is really boring, but we, let, let's define what I mean by autonomous vehicles. Um, so the SAE levels L four, L five basically define autonomous vehicles are exactly what they mean. These are vehicles which are have no human intervention at all. The car will never ask you to take over the wheel. Not to be confused with. ADAS systems or level three systems or systems which will say, oh, Dan, sorry, I can't see down the road. Could you please take over the driving task? A true autonomous vehicle will never do that. And that's the technology that Waymo was and is working on. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a believer. They're, they're, they're going to happen for sure. Um, they're going to happen first, probably in heavy trucks. Uh, for various reasons, the technology is, is simpler to apply to heavy trucks. And the business case is pretty obvious. So if you think about a, you know, a, a big 18-wheeler hauling stuff across the U.S., at the moment, that asset is limited to working every day, let's say, 8 to 10 hours, because it's limited by the driver's uh, safe driving times. Um, if you can drive it autonomously, that big rig can now work 22, 23 hours a day. And the business case is massive, and it's obvious. Mm. So that's where we're going to see the first applications. And I'm going to put my neck out and say you're going to see that in the next or three years, mainly in the US. You're going to see big rigs hauling down the highway, nobody wow. at all at the wheel. That's going to happen. Um, and and nobody, on, nobody even on board. 
Nobody on board. And oh. actually, that's already happening, actually. If you go to certain parts of Texas, you'll already see tests going on. But it's going to happen. When I say it's going to happen, I mean, it's going to happen commercially, not just as a pilot, but actually making money. Um, that's going to happen really faster than you think. Now, coming back to your point, Dan, when can you sell your golf and just call a way more shuttle to take you around the place? That's a while off because having passenger vehicles work everywhere, especially in, in complex downtown urban areas, is a horrendously difficult problem. It's difficult technically, and the business case is also difficult. So that's going to take some time. Um, for the skeptics who say it'll never happen, I say, well, go to San Francisco because it's already happening. Go to Beijing, it's already happening. Go to Seoul in Korea, it's already happening. But it's going to take a long time. It's going to take probably to the end of this decade before, you know, let's call us, you know, you're going to look at your car in the driveway and say, hmm, do I really need that? It's going it, to, it's, it's a while off yet. The technology is mind boggling. I can't say too much about it, but it is deeply impressive. And the more you know about it, the more you realize how hard it is. So we've talked a bit of EVs, we've talked a bit of autonomous driving. Um, there's a project that we cannot talk about that you're involved in, which is clearly where you get your petrol head kicks from. Um, and I just want to reinforce the point that you are a petrol head through and through. At home, you've got um, an air-cooled 911. You've got a 106 Rally, haven't you? Which is, you live in the Alps, don't you? So a little 106 Rally up there must be perfect. Oh, I'm a, I actually, I came in from... Um... I, I came in from a business trip to uh, Geneva Airport uh, last week, and it was raining, kind of sleety rain. I picked up my little 106 in the car park, and I drove it home through these, uh, you know, you know, French back roads. Uh, it was late at night. I was by myself. I thought, what a perfect car. That was, yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lucky boy. It was just sleeting, raining. The, the road was slippy as hell. I could, nobody else around. I had these crappy 106 yellow headlights lighting <laughs> the way ahead of me and uh, it was just um, yeah it was it was it was awesome i love that fantastic car. fantastic um we could go on all day but we we've run out of time um so we'll have to leave it there but i mean i feel like we've barely scratched the surface with your career and your well, insights you'll, have, into the you'll car have to industry. come back yeah we will we'll we'll do you it know where i am folks not far away yeah indeed all right uh, well, thank, thank you so much david yeah thank you david we'll do it again Thank you, guys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 